Revelation 16, beginning in the first verse. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty." Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and a great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. May God add his blessing to this reading of his inerrant word. We come now this morning to Revelation chapter 16. And as you can almost tell by looking at most Bibles, this is very interconnected with the previous chapter, chapter 15. There is no great break in between them. The thoughts are mainly continuous. And you may remember that the main emphasis in the previous chapter was the song of Moses. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, 
For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And that remains at the heart of our chapter this morning. In chapter 15, God was to be glorified for his character and for his works that are consistent with that character. And the specific aspects of his character that were in view, his holiness, his justice, his truth. Now, for us, when you think of someone who is righteous, when you think of someone who is holy in some relative way, and of course we're only speaking in relative terms, there's none good other than God, we think about their own personal conduct. We think about their own personal obedience to the law. But you see, it's a little bit different for those who are in authority. Their justice, their righteousness, their holiness must be manifested in the way they deal with others. And as you go up again that ladder, all the way to God himself, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness are very much manifested in the way that he deals with people. And specifically, the way he deals with those who are his own people, his saints, and in contrast, the way he deals with his enemies, those who break his law, those who remain rebels against him to the end. Well, what we have there in Revelation 16, I think the center part of it is in verses 5, 6, and 7. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now you see, incidentally, just how significant these things are in the eyes of the Lord. They may not be significant to you, but they certainly are to God. Because he repeats them over and over and over again in Scripture. And particularly here in Revelation, the final word, the final aspect of God's canon to us. These things are incredibly important. And therefore, they're repeated. And what we also see, again, is that he is righteous, O Lord, because he has judged the wicked. Because he is requiting the wicked for their wicked deeds. And most particularly, For those who have persecuted his saints, he is requiting their wicked deeds upon them. And for this reason, God is known, is manifested, Christ is manifested as righteous and holy. You see, justice will be done. Blood will be avenged. Accounts are going to be settled. And I have this morning, I think, a very difficult, perhaps impossible task I want you to rejoice in Christ as he is revealed to us in this part of Revelation. Now, it is interesting to me the topics that uh, you know that we have a Lectio Continua style of, of preaching. We go through entire books, and sometimes the topic is more palatable, and sometimes it is less to me and to you. And in situations where it's not the case in the church these days, You can, and I don't mean to say that this is the only way to do it. But what are the topics that are selected? What are the themes that are constantly gone over, over and over again, and given inordinate uh, emphasis? And what are the things that are not so emphasized? Well, we are very happy to hear about God's great willingness to receive sinners. And that is true. We are very happy to talk about his free grace 
to those who are, are not worthy. And that is very true. And this, by the way, very much speaks of that. We're going to speak of that even this morning. But we don't hear so much about these things. And we don't get the sense that it is absolutely necessary for God to manifest himself as holy by requiting the blood of his saints. We don't get the sense that Christ himself, in, he must fulfill that great type in the Old Testament of the avenger of blood. And this is particularly the thing that I'm thinking about this morning. We don't think too much about the avenger of blood, but it was a big picture, big, big type in the Old Testament. You see it repeated throughout the Pentateuch. You see, for instance, the interesting uh, and we think strange provision for there being these cities of refuge. Well, believe it or not, the cities of refuge were one of the greatest testimonies, the greatest pictures of the New Testament church. These cities of refuge in the whole land. There's a whole land of people. And some of these, some of these people recognize themselves to be sinners. Well, in this case, they're murderers, right? Or manslayers. Manslayers, they've shed men's blood. And they run to refuge in the city of refuge. And as long as they stay in the city of refuge, they'll be saved. Now, if they to ever leave the city of refuge and to go out into the world as, as a whole, what's going to happen? Well, the avenger of blood will catch them and kill them. And nothing was going to happen to the avenger of blood because it was perfectly right for that to be so. They're guilty sinners. And their only chance is in coming to the city of refuge. Well, we should guess, I hope, that Christ is the fulfillment of the city of refuge. He is the one to whom we flee, though we are guilty of sin, though we are guilty of bloodshed ourselves in various ways. We come to him and we're saved. But the thing is, he is also the fulfillment of the avenger of blood. You see, I will read just, I'm going to speak a little bit more about that. But it says, The avenger of blood himself, in Numbers 35, The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And as I mentioned, if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, then the avenger of blood kills a manslayer, and he shall not be guilty of blood. There's both of these things. Well, you know that throughout this, we've had these series of seals and then trumpets and now these vials of, or bowls of judgment being poured out. And they all have something to do with the plagues on Egypt. Well, these, the, what were exactly the plagues on Egypt? What were they except vengeance upon the persecutors and tormentors of God's people? Now, none of these things fell on the land of Goshen. None of these things fell on the place where God's people were. As long as they remained within the boundaries of that place, as long as they remained identified as God's people, none of these things fell on them. But rather, in this land and this people that had tormented and persecuted God's people for all this time, the blood was on that land. Defiling the place, God was taking vengeance on his people. Now, of course, we know that the very act of taking vengeance upon those people is the way that he saves them. When he sends all these plagues upon them, plagues of darkness, as we see, and plagues of turning water into blood, which seems to be one of the main things here. That's the way of bringing his people and saving them, as well as avenging the blood of his own people. Well, this morning I want us to think about Christ as the avenger of blood. 
And we have these three points. First, the mark requited with a sore. Second, the blood of the saints requited with blood. And third, yet they did not repent. First, the mark requited with a sore. And what we're talking about are those, the idea of identification, of choosing sides, as we've been mentioning the whole, if, if all of the, the entire scripture has to do with the children of uh, the seed of the woman and the, the, those who follow the serpent from the very beginning and how in the end the seed of the woman, Christ, is going to crush the head of the serpent, both of these entities have their seed, the seed of Christ on this earth and the seed of the serpent. And therefore also in Revelation, we have the serpent, the great dragon who deceives the whole world. And this beast, he has an image. And, and those who worship him receive a mark of the beast. And now it's not at all like we have in sort of Christian science fiction where um, it's something entirely physical. It's not like that. We know that because, likewise, God's people receive a mark on their foreheads, don't they? Um, we're told in Revelation 7.3, Do not harm the earth, the sea, to, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. We know this to be, of course, the Holy Spirit. Well, on the other hand, the children of Satan, those who follow the false prophet and the beast, they receive this mark. He causes, this is Revelation 13, 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, the number of his name. Now, this mark is at the same time a good thing for the, the wicked, the followers of the beast, all the people in the world, because they've got it, and therefore they won't be persecuted. They've identified themselves publicly in one way or another, uh, more than likely their behavior, the things that they say, and so forth, and their outward adherence to the religion of the beast. It means they're not persecuted. It means when the beast and his people go around in their murderous, persecuting ways, they're not going to do anything to people who have the, the mark. And that means that they can go and buy and sell. They can freely take of all the world's goods. Reminds us, of course, of the, uh, the uh, when Satan came tempting the Lord. He was not above the idea of tempting the Lord with, look, you can have all the stuff in the world. I own it. You can have it in all of its glory. Isn't it a wonderful thing? He even thought he could tempt Christ that way. Well, when you have the mark of the beast, you get to have your fill of these things. When you publicly identify yourself with Satan and the world system as it is, then you will not be persecuted. On the other hand, you can freely buy and sell according to the world's normal way of doing things. You can have the things of this world. So it's a way of avoiding persecution. It's a way of being blessed by all the things that Satan can give you in this world. And it's also another way, a method of persecuting God's people. It says, if you don't have the mark or the name of the beast, then you're not going to be able to buy or sell. Meaning that the world is going to deny its good things to you. Materially, in terms of honor in particular, there's going to be things that will not be available to God's people. There will be aspects of the good things of this world, which may not really be good after all, but the apparently good things of this world that will be 
forbidden to God's people. And on the other hand, whereas having the mark of the beast was a means of making sure you'd not get persecuted, lacking that mark, lacking that identification with Satan and with his world, speaking like the world, acting like the world, believing as they do, looking like they do, means that you are very much liable to persecution. You have no cloak, you have no get-out-of-jail-free card when the world decides it wants to persecute Christians. You'll know that you're one of us because you haven't taken the mark of the beast upon you. And therefore, this mark will become a means of your persecution, the lack thereof. But now, things are a little different, aren't they? That was the way things were in Revelation 13. And now in Revelation 16, the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of what was said in actually Revelation 14.9. And a third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which has poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment descends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now the wrath of this world, the wrath of Satan, is a terrible thing to behold. And all we have to do is look around the world, even today, at the persecuted church, throughout much of the world and you see the wrath and anger and bitterness of this world as they turn against in, in many ways Christians as they have done for all the centuries there is something that mere identification with the holy God and with his Christ makes us hateful in their eyes but ladies and gentlemen let me say that this is in nothing absolute nothing comparison to God's wrath being poured out against them. However angry they may be, and however terrible their, their vengeance may be upon God's people, it is nothing in comparison to God's vengeance upon them in wrath. And now this thing that used to be their get-out-of-jail card, their public identification with the world that saves them from persecution is the thing that brings upon them the very worst imaginable thing, which is the wrath of a holy God. When you mark yourself out as being part of the world, you mark yourself out for destruction. When you take the image upon yourself, when you assume the words and the ways of this world, keep in mind that whatever good it might do you for a little while, you are marking yourself out for eternal destruction. And here these things are beginning in their particular fullness in Revelation 16.2. By the way of a sore, a grievous sore, I went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And the two Greek words are the two worst Greek words for bad, wicked, Malicious, malevolent, malignant is perhaps one way of thinking of it. And this wicked, grievous, malignant sore given to all those who have this mark of the beast, perhaps pictured to be on their forehead. 
Well, God is requiting these things upon their own head. The mark is requited with a sore. And secondly, and perhaps this takes up more of our time this morning, the blood of the saints is requited with blood. It says in verse 3, Then the second angel poured out his his bowl upon the sea, and it became blood as a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl upon the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. For it is their just due. There are so many interesting things in this passage. Of course, we have to look back at the Exodus plague. We recall how it was that uh, God dealt with the Egyptians as a foretaste, as a picture of what was going to later happen at the end of the world. It says in in, um, uh, Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 19, The Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And you see the totality and the great the depth and severity of this, of this plague on Egypt. That it wasn't just in some source of water and not others, it was all their sources of water. Well, likewise, we have these separate pourings out and becomings of blood, not only on the sea, all right? In some sense, you say, well, we can live with that, even if the sea becomes deadly blood that, and uh, then we don't normally drink water. Well, we're not speaking of this being against drinking water. We're speaking of it destroying all the fish and so forth that are the means of sustenance for many people. And indirectly, the sea is um, such a great part, in fact, of the life-giving Influence that God has set in, in place in this world in various ways, the, the ecosystem. But it's not just the sea, so all that's dead. They can't possibly live. And of course, as a huge, just imagine the thought of looking out and seeing the, the sea as the blood of a dead man. But it's also all the sources of, of fresh water. And it's a very um, total situation. That uh, in verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl in the rivers and springs of water. So all the sources of, of fresh water which they had available, and therefore we're speaking of our totality of, of fresh water is turned into blood. Now how long can people survive without fresh water? Well, not very long at all. And the point is, as we see in these last set, in these vials or bowls of judgment, they're being poured out in rapid succession. One's not even done by the time the next one comes upon them. And in fact, we're coming to the very end as God is pouring out the fullness of his wrath on the earth. But the particular point here, beyond the mechanics of what's going on and and how it perfectly captures and fulfills that which we had in Exodus it says that they, this was their just due. In fact, it could well have been um, translated for they are worthy. It's the exact same word used earlier on when it says the lamb is worthy. The lamb who was slain is worthy to receive honor and glory. They are worthy. They are, it is their just due to receive this. Why? Because they shed the blood of saints and prophets. 
Now, does that mean that every last person who is living, all the billions of people who are living on the earth at the time of the end, that they personally have shed the blood of the saints? No. No, that's beyond unlikely. That's, that's not the issue. Just as all of the saints are pictured as the martyrs early on, the souls of the martyrs in, in Revelation chapter 6, so that those who have given their lives in their witness, in their faithful witness and maintenance of, of the confession of Christ in the face of persecution and laid down their lives, are just as those, in fact, stand for all of God's people, because we all stand in unity and solidarity together, so it is with the persecutors. They have among them those who have done these things. They have among them those who have persecuted and have, have destroyed. And you know what? It's sort of like what happens with Paul, right? Paul didn't actually take out his hand and kill anybody. But he uh, was very much throwing in his lot with those who were. He was very much in agreeance with those. And he strengthened their hands. And so it is throughout this world. There are those who persecute God's people. And all around them there are those who say nothing at all. They let it go on. In their heart they agree with them and they do not bring them to justice. Well, they alike then, as they have shed blood and have had their hand in the shedding of God's people's blood, they themselves will taste blood. It was their due. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. Now, just in a basic idea of requiting blood, we know from Genesis 6-9, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed. For in the image of God he made man. We're reminded of the, of the incredible significance of human beings having the image of God upon them, that no one can just lightly come and shed your blood. And then furthermore, in Numbers 35 you shall take, no, number 35, starting in verse 31, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to a city of refuge so that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. Meaning he can't, there's no exception to the rule, must stay there in a city of refuge. If he leaves beforehand, before the death of the high priest, then he's going to be killed. Why? In verse 33, so you shall not pollute the land where you are. For blood defiles the land and no atonement can be made for the land. The blood is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You see how that goes? Blood defiles the land. And what is being pictured here is a whole world that is defiled. A whole world that has in various ways been guilty of bloodshed and has shared in particularly the even worse crime of shedding the blood of Christ's own people. And therefore they are ripe for destruction. They are ripe for judgment. The thing that is necessary is that their blood be shed. Now, we spoke about how there's this picture of the avenger of blood. And if you leave the city of refuge, you make yourself liable to the avenger of blood. And I have suggested that Christ is the great fulfillment of that. And I want to, at the risk of sort of stealing the thunder from a future sermon in Deuteronomy, we have to look at Deuteronomy 32. Um, Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 39. This is the other song of Moses. Remember, we're, the, the whole context here is the song of Moses. And one aspect of the Song of Moses is God revealing himself as the avenger of his people. 
Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives, from the heads of the leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. You see how that goes? There's a lot of unfinished business in this world as it yet remains. A lot of unfinished business. You know, one of the reasons why we have a tough time with the wrath of God is just because God is so patient. And there is a time delay, a big time delay before, between God, these uh, wicked deeds being done and when they're finally brought to justice. But the thing that God himself is revealing to us, both in Deuteronomy and in Revelation, is that he is the avenger of the blood of his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. No, we haven't seen him do it yet. We've seen a couple of prefigurings, like in Egypt, for instance. Like in Sodom and Gomorrah. But we haven't seen him do it in his fullness. That's what Revelation is about. It is showing us a part of Christ that we have not yet seen. That's what's new. That's what's revelatory about it. That we come to see this aspect of our Savior. Now look, as I mentioned, these, two, these things, judgment is always inextricably connected with salvation. So even in Deuteronomy 32, he says, who will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. You see, the thing is, Sin is not something that is to be taken lightly. We take it lightly, God doesn't. And for each and every sin, it must be dealt with. Right? If someone persecutes or kills God's people, their blood is going to be shed. If we sin against God, then I guess our blood needs to be shed, right? Or somebody's blood needs to be shed. And of course, we know that Christ provides atonement for his people. We know that whether it is through bringing people to absolute justice and the smoke of his wrath of sins forever and ever and the torment of the people of those who suffer the wrath of God for their sins, that either happens that way or Christ himself provides atonement for his people. Someone's blood is going to be shed. Either our own or of Christ's. Well, maybe we'll say a little bit later on this, but for the moment, again, we're thinking of Christ specifically as the avenger of the blood of his people. And this is something, actually, throughout Scripture, mentioned in Second Samuel, mentioned in Psalm 9, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. What is he doing when he avenges his people? He is remembering their cry. He is remembering their prayer. He is remembering... The prayers, don't forget about those, those saints. They have a pretty big role, don't they, in their prayers. 
There they are under the altar. They don't have any bodies. Their souls are there in the presence of God. And they're praying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on the earth? Well, Revelation is all about the fact that God heard those prayers. He doesn't forget about them. Or Jeremiah 46.10, For this is the day of the Lord of ho- God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. That he may avenge himself. Our enemies are his enemies, and his enemies are our enemies. And when people set themselves against God's people, they set themselves against God. They make themselves to be uh, enemies of Christ. And he says he's going to avenge himself on his adversaries. And most of all, by the way, I'd say a fairly obscure passage in Nahum chapter 1. I don't know if you've read Nahum recently, but um, please don't skip over the, the minor prophets. There's amazing things in them. And as God is revealing himself in Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 2, it says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, the Lord, Lord is slow to anger and great in power. We haven't seen it all yet. But he will not at all quit the wicked. The Lord will show his way in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds and dusts. And skipping to verse 6. And who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and his rocks are thrown down for him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of the place and darkness will pursue his enemies. You see, the Lord has to make good on all these promises. He's been promising his people since the very beginning that he's going to avenge them. He has been promising the wicked that their day is going to come. And he's got to make good on these things. Or else he's a liar. The Lord says he's righteous. I've mentioned before... Maybe we as private people in our own spheres, the only thing that defines our righteousness is our personal obedience to God's law. But if you're in charge of, a, of say, law enforcement or the military or some other situation or you're a judge or otherwise involved in this way and you have a situation where it is your job to judge and to requite and to punish And you don't do it. Do you know what you are? You are unrighteous. You are unworthy. You are not holy. You are weak. You are wicked. You are evil. And no righteous judge at all. God, he's not like that. He is demonstrating his righteousness. His perfections. In the perfection of his wrath and judgment on his enemies. The day will not come where any one of those who have set their heart against God in hatred will ever say, I got away with it. It'll never happen. And you know what we're supposed to do in the light of these things? We are supposed to be glad. And to praise God for it. 
Psalm 18:46 says the Lord lives blessed be my rock let the god of my salvation be exalted it is god who avenges me and subdues the people under me he delivers me from my enemies you also lift me up against those who rise against me and delivered me from the violent man the there's always as i say to our children there's always the stuff of praise there's always the 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 raw material for worship and the material in Psalm 18 is that this God of my salvation is the one who avenges me. And we praise him for it. And if we didn't have it there, we'd certainly have it in Revelation itself. And, and not so long we're going to come to Revelation 19.1. And after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with his fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Why are these people praising God? Why are they worshiping him? Because he has avenged their blood. If they can worship God in such ways, so can we. If it is right that the manifestation, the revelation of Christ's righteousness as the avenger of the blood of his people is worship in heaven. It is right that it be worshiped when it is revealed through his word to us. Now, just as a very lesser illustration, I was speaking to some of the young people about the benefits of joining this local church. And one of the benefits has to do with the elders now have a special care if part of their official duties to take spiritual care of them, to defend them from those who come like wolves in to destroy. Well, let me say, much, much, much more so is one of the benefits of joining the universal church, of joining Christ, of being part of his people, that he therefore binds himself to take vengeance upon those who would take it in their hands to do you ill. And we'll have an application about that later on. This is something that we should praise God for. As it goes on to say in verse 7, And I heard another, where is it from? From the altar. Saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Could it be that maybe these, this is indeed the voice of those same ones who had been previously praying to God how long? O oh Lord. Now these ones, this one from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. There's nothing false in them. There's nothing that is not fulfilled. All the promises you ever made to us to be our avenger, they are true. And we praise you for it. And thirdly and finally, and most strangely, the thing that doesn't seem to fit quite as well, the fact that the Lord would take vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his people, that makes perfect sense. The thing that's hard to figure out is our third and final point, they did not repent. Because in verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun and the power was given him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. That's strange, isn't it? I don't get it. If anything, 
You know, we are so worried when we speak to people and they immediately respond. Again, Satan has a wonderful catechism program, doesn't he? They always respond with, what about the people in the far-off land that have never heard about Christ? And we're sort of afraid of that objection, and we, we, have, we scramble to come up with something to say about that. But, you know, what we see revealed for us in Scripture is... Uh, reminds us that we don't need to worry about this. Okay? Because here you have people in the greatest, most clear situation that God does exist. And he's not taking it lightly. They may have been under so-called... Remember, it's all about self-deception. They know the truth. They know there's a God. They know that they're sinners. They know that the judgment day is coming. All those things are written on the hearts of men. Revelation, or Romans chapter 1 makes it very clear they have this self-deception and they want to go around, they talk to one another and they imagine in their mind, no, he's not really real. He doesn't really, oh, if he's real, he doesn't really care about our sins. Maybe he just cares about Hitler's but not mine. And they live under this deception. And they make it another day and another day. But now all those things are stripped away. Christ has revealed himself in the clouds of glory. And even now he is pouring out his wrath upon these people. And when absolute irrefutable proof is before them, what do they do? They harden their hearts. They shake their fists. They even now do not repent of their sin. They continue in their sin and wicked rebellion against God. Don't worry about the people in Bongo Bongo land. The work of salvation is a fundamentally supernatural event. It requires, we worry about them in the sense of we send them missionaries. We worry about them in the sense of praying for them. But do not think that it is merely because people have not come in contact with a sufficient enough proof or demonstration of the reality of God that they'll go to hell. It is their own wickedness and rebellion, the only cure for which being the supernatural work of regeneration in their hearts. And yes, of course, that's accompanied in God's providence with the means of grace being set before them. But if he can do one, he can do the other. So, no, uh, human beings, look, the CIA can drop leaflets in places anywhere they want. We can do that much. But to change a heart, that's something that only God can do. And sadly and strangely, these people, even when they have this irrefutable proof before them, do not repent. And just as if to bring the, the point home, it goes on in verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out those bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of their pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. How do they respond to these things? By blaspheming God. More than likely, this is a cycle that repeats itself, continues on for all of eternity. They never repent. They continually shake their fist to the God whom they hate. Now, they have to bow their knee. Every knee will bow. But it won't be the voluntary, loving worship that God's people give to God. In their heart, they continue the rebellion and blasphemy. Now, what do we think about Christ now? 
You know, it's often stated the other side of the coin that um, the idea that we we need to understand um, the the goodness of God, and we we mix it with just a little bit of of the wrath of God in order to to see things the way they are. But you know, I don't think that we fully recognize. Uh, the idea of Christ's humility and his service to us and his grace in saving us and all the rest of those things that we find in the Gospels, I don't think we really can put them into context unless we first understand the, the dread, righteous, angry wrath of this Christ. How much more did it mean to John the Apostle when he thinks back to that scene there in the upper room, leaning on the breast of his best friend to see him revealed as this avenger of blood, to see him revealed as he's given this vision of the future in heaven of his righteous anger being poured out on the whole earth. I think it meant a lot more. How much more did it mean to the rest of the apostles, to to Peter, who dared to deny his Lord and yet was forgiven, how much more did it mean? Or to those sinners and tax collectors who had their sins forgiven by this meek, gentle Lord Jesus Christ, when they now come to see him as he truly and fully is. How much more does the gospel mean to us when we consider the greatness of the condescension of Christ to come on our sin-cursed World to live among us these 30-some years and then to lay down his life, to be tied up, as John Payne mentioned to us last week, tied up and spat upon and tormented and killed. He who at any moment could have called the more than 12 legions of angels and wiped them out. How much more does it mean to us? This is to the glory of Almighty God, that this is his way of salvation. To apply these things to us, I would say I'd make, first of all, something that I understand may not be the main point of the passage, but it's one application. And it's something I think that the martyrs in heaven learned. You see, there are several chapters in between chapter 6 and chapter 16. And the application for us is that some prayers take a while to answer. Some prayers take a while to answer. You have, as I've said, the metaphorical martyrs, all of God's people who are in solidarity and who always run the risk of being persecuted. Again, we're taking the the mark of Christ upon us and we always therefore walk around being susceptible to the persecution of the world. And we may not actually physically endure it, but we have solidarity with those who do, and we never know when our turn might come. But you have among them these met- uh, the actual physical martyrs. We have them, for instance, Jesus' own half-brother James, right? He's there. He's one of those souls. And also Peter and Paul who gave their life. And how long have they been there? Getting on to be 2,000 years, right? And how long have they been praying? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Getting on to be 2,000 years, right? From when this 
book was written nineteen hundred and eighty years or ninety years or something along those lines, right? Now, if Jesus' own half brother and his and his disciples, whom he loved, could be sitting there and praying for all this long time, and their prayer hadn't yet been answered, then, brethren, maybe such things happen with us. Because let's just think about what couldn't be the case. Is there prayer? Are they in sin, first, first of all? Are they in sin? No. No, they're in heaven. It's sinless. There's no possibility of them being in sin whatsoever. So, therefore, is there anything deficient about their prayer? Are they praying contrary to the will of God? No. They are very much praying according to the will of God in their sinless perfection in the constant presence of the Lord. Perfect clarity. And yet, their prayer has not yet been answered. Even today, their prayer has not yet been answered. And ladies and gentlemen, if that is the case with them, it just might be the case with us. You know, Jesus even made this specific thing in, in Luke 18.7. We know the, the, um, the parable or the illustration of the persistent widow. And the persistent widow is going to this judge who won't give her justice over her adversary. And the, the judge doesn't regard man and does not regard uh, God. He could care less. But because of her persistence, coming back and back, eventually he says, all right, I'll give, in, I'll give justice to this widow just because she's going to wear me out by her constant asking. And God says, I'm better than that. He says, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Okay? He's pointing out the idea of avenging his people. Well, let God's definition of speedy be his own definition and not ours. What is given to us is to continue to pray according to his will for the things that we are warranted in Scripture to pray for. And it may not be speedy according to our definition, but according to God's definition, there is no delay at all, and these things will certainly happen. Some prayers take a while to answer. Secondly, if Christ is the avenger, then we are not. That's the great thing, okay? The perfection, the totality of Christ's vengeance upon his enemies means that there's nothing left for us. If Christ were a, a kind of 75% solution with regard to some time, he got most of those and most of, of their sins, but let some go and some he only halfway avenged, then there'd be work left for us to do. But there's no work left for us. Which is why Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him bread. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. See? Christ is the avenger of our blood. That is, he's going to fulfill all those prayers. We've got to be patient. But we certainly don't have any work to do along those lines. We've got a lot of work to do in this life. But do not waste a single thought or deed or word on taking vengeance for yourself. As God is going to do that for us. You remember what David said to Saul. Even as Saul was very much in his hands, sometimes we wish and pray sometimes, sadly, that our enemies would be in our hands and we could do with them as we wish. But when that happened to David... 
says, let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge, you, avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you, 1 Samuel 24. Just because Christ is the avenger of blood means we cannot be. Thirdly and finally, I have to ask the question again, why do you not repent? Why do you not repent? If you've just seen how perfect in all ways is the Lord, perfect in his mercy and justice and long-suffering and grace and also in his perfect vengeance, you know that the day of wrath is coming and there'll be no exception. Why don't you repent? We, we spoke of these people who, even when every proof could possibly be given to them, maybe at some point these people had, there had been a conviction of the Holy Spirit. We know that that happens. In Hebrews it speaks of that, that sometimes there are those who taste just a little bit. They don't, they're not regenerated. They've not come to justification, but they've tasted just a little bit. They've been under the preaching of the word, for instance. They've been in the presence of God's people. They've seen these things. And yet for some reason they turn away. Yet for some reason when given the opportunity they don't repent. Well, scripture declares that these things are just and true. That this day of judgment and vengeance is coming. And we have no reason to doubt it whatsoever. I've said that this thing is written in our hearts. We know it's coming. And if you're outside of Christ, I would plead with you to repent. Don't be like those in Revelation 16. When these things come upon them, that they simply harden their hearts. Repent and put your faith in Christ. He's so infinitely merciful to us that even we who were once his enemies, even we who have once been so set against him, may be received and embraced by him if we come to him in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would have a perfect view of Christ. How saddened we are with our, the own, our dullness of heart and mind that we do not see him as he is and that even when he is shown to us it is a slow process and a grainy image that comes to our hearts rather than it Christ in his beauty and fullness. And Lord, between the infirmities of the preacher and the infirmities of the people, Lord, there is much to be repented of even this morning. But Lord God, at you and your Holy Spirit, you have no limitation to your power. And you are able to make those even who have stony hearts, even those who have set themselves against this Lord, even, though, even those who the more they find out about the real Jesus Christ, the more they hate him. You can make even these to turn to him in love and faith and everlasting gratefulness. And you can make your people repent of their sins. And you can make your people rejoice and worship you as they ought to do. Lord, how we pray that you would do these things for your own glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.